Jeffrey Shaw is often described as an authority and advocate for self-employed business owners, valued for his actionable and in-the-trenches approach to achieving business and life success. Why shouldn't he be? How many people can say they've never worked for anyone else? Selling eggs door-to-door at 14 years old led to a lifetime of self-employment. In his 20s, he built a portrait photography business and became one of the most sought-after portrait photographers for affluent families in the U.S. for more than three decades. His portraits have been on The Oprah Show, CBS News, featured in People and O Magazine, and Hang at Harvard University. Today, Jeffrey is the author of Lingo and The Self-Employed Life, host of The Self-Employed Life podcast with over 2 million downloads, and founder of the Self-Employed Business Institute. His TEDx talk is featured on TED.com. He's a LinkedIn learning instructor, contributor to Entrepreneur Magazine, and speaks at association events, entrepreneurial groups, and conferences. Hi, I'm Casey, and right here beside me is Kelsey. We are licensed professional counselors, mothers, entrepreneurs, oh, and besties. We know firsthand what it's like to wake up one day and think, how in the heck did I wind up here? Through our own journeys of self-discovery, we found that joy is something that has to be pursued through internal work. Now we are on a mission to help women from all walks of life understand themselves more so they can have real lasting joy. Join us every Thursday to hear fun and insightful interviews with experts who can point you toward self-discovery and fulfillment. I have to say, I rarely get excited to be interviewed on a podcast anymore because I do so many of them, but I've been really looking forward to this. I'm like, okay, this is going to be fun. I know. Kelsey's got some good little questions for you. <laughs> well, it's funny. I was going to text you last night like, oh, so by the way, what the hell are we talking about? But I'm like, literally, it, the field is yours. Ooh, I like this. <laughs> okay. I want to have fun with this. Like, I'm tired of doing the same old, same old. That's why I wanted to be on your show. I'm like, let's really make this a back porch conversation. That's all I wanted to hear. Well, okay. Happy birthday, by the way. Thank you. When's yours? I can't believe you're only 40. I'm like, how is it you have accomplished all that you have accomplished and you're just turning? I wasn't even gay by 40. (laughs) I didn't come out. I didn't come out till 44. I'm like, you're a child and look what you've accomplished. Oh, no, I don't. I don't feel that way. But thank you. Well, you should. And that's why I'm saying it, because what, what you have accomplished by age 40 is ridiculous. Oh, well, thanks. All right, okay. I'm all yours. Are you still living in, I know you moved from Miami. Yes. And then you went to like the suburbs. Yeah. I, I basically, the question is, where the hell are you living and why? Yeah. <laughs> I, I pretty much ask my, myself that on a daily basis. I mean, who the hell leaves, moves from you know New York City to Miami and then Miami to the middle of nowhere? Like, and it's not the middle of nowhere. So I live in Jacksonville. Okay. So now here's the thing with Jacksonville. I guess I didn't do enough homework. I didn't realize this city had the reputation it does. First of all, it's the biggest city in the United States land-wise. It's 857 square miles. So land-wise, it's literally the biggest city in the United States. And what's been so interesting about that is that I move here and everybody that lives here is like, who the hell moves from Miami to Jacksonville? Like People that live here are like, why would you leave Miami to come here? People that lived in Miami are like, what the hell are you thinking? Like, nobody got it. Apparently, Jacksonville has a pretty seedy reputation, like a very racist and, you know, uh, has has a pretty terrible reputation, which I knew nothing about. All I knew is that 
I wanted to move back to Connecticut after having rented a house for a month the, the summer before. Yeah. I wanted to move back to Connecticut. I loved, loved Miami. You've been there to visit me. Loved it. Loved my apartment. But I was done. I was like, I've, I've seen enough partying. I've seen enough bright lights. I've seen enough twerking on boats. Like, I'm done. I wanted quaint again. I wanted a fireplace. I wanted a garden. I wanted a kitchen that inspired me to bake. Like, all the things that I used to do that were a big part of my life that I realized I've put aside for the fast lane. Mm-hmm. And I wanted them all back. So... I rented this house in Connecticut built in 1790, which is the same year my house in Connecticut was built. So I brought back all those antique home memories and I wanted that again. So I was moving back to Connecticut, uh, much to the chagrin of my then partner. So he's like, I'm not moving back to Connecticut. And uh, along many conversations, one of them was like, look, if you're going to put me in the driver's seat of life, you don't get to be a backseat driver and make all the decisions. Like the money's all mine. The decision's all mine. I'm leading this whole damn ship. Therefore, I get a little bit of option at the wheel. Like, and I want out of this. I want out of this, like, high living pressure done. So, but me being me, I'm like, okay, but let's give it one more try. Let's compromise. So, I didn't move to Connecticut. And that's why we moved to Jacksonville because we live in the historic district, which yeah. looks like a Hallmark movie. I mean, is this, this, the historic district has its own town center, which couldn't be more quaint. I have a hundred year old home. With all the things that I wanted. It's small, it's bungalow style, it's quaint glass doorknobs, which excite me way more than they should. <laughs> <laughs> I bake all the time now, like I'm a baking machine. I put in gardens. I'm actually my, I'm going to be on the garden tour, uh, the annual garden tour for the historic district uh, this coming uh, May. So I got all the things and I stayed in Florida. But so now, but now I live in the middle of nowhere. The relationship ends. And I'm living in a really suburban town with tons and tons of gays, but the suburban gays, they're married with kids. I'm like the <laughs> only sing. Not, I'm not going to say I'm the only single gay guy, but I'm the only one I would date because if you're, if you're living here and you're single, yeah. you're probably a little too rougher on the edges for me. So here I am. I don't know what's next. I may be moving back to Connecticut after all. Wow. It sounds right. like in Miami, you were looking for joy. And you were trying to cultivate that. How has that shifted? And do you think you found little joys? Do you think that there's more to discover? Oh, man, man. You know, what makes that a great question is I have made every decision in my life, probably from a perspective of joy, as far as that's what I love most about being self-employed, right? I have never been really location-reliant. I mean, yes, to a degree I was as a photographer, but only because my reputation was built in the New York City tri-state area. But the fact of the matter is, my clients had homes all over the world, and I traveled to their homes anyway. So it wasn't really location-dependent, which is what enabled me to, to move to Miami in the first place. But to me, it's in a way always been a pursuit of joy. So most definitely, I got a taste of a different type of joy, a joy that I didn't realize had been missing when I rented the house that month in Connecticut, the baking and the gardens. And yeah, I wanted that joy again, which I felt was sorely lacking in Miami with all the things I loved about Miami, the excitement, the bright lights, the great food. It didn't have joy. Like we never used the oven. Like I don't think the oven had ever been turned on in that condo in in six years of living there because you don't cook in Miami. It's too hot and there's great food outside your door. Like why bother? Yeah. But you realize at some point that's something you enjoyed doing that you gave up. So it really was largely about, fi- have I found it? That's the bigger question. I found 
everything I set out to get in where I chose to move to. I don't know if I have joy right now. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of a lot of struggle, a lot of a lot of pain. You know, the loss of the relationship. I mean, I said to my coach, like, I think I made a huge mistake. Like, why am I here? And what he said to me was spot on. He said, I think you just need a little time to lay down in a meadow mm -hmm. and see what goes on. And that's kind of the way I feel. It's like, I don't know what's, I, I don't think this is a permanent move, even though I thought it was because I have elements of joy, but I don't feel the full picture of joy that I'm used to. And I don't think I can find it here. So mm -hmm. I think it's, I'm going to have to move again. I like to think of it as, in case you might have something to say after I say this, but like sometimes we're just in the hallway or like right in the crack of a door that can bring us joy. We just don't know it yet. We're like in a waiting period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're in the hallway. We're not through it's, the door yet. It's like that in the Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, it's the waiting place, right? He talks about the waiting place. Yeah, I mean, I love, I've absolutely loved my coach's scenario of, I think you just need to lay down in a meadow for a little bit. and And that has shown up in so many powerful ways. My mother died a year ago this past December 27th. We moved in November. November 1st, I think we closed. She died the following December 27th. I don't know that her death would have had nearly the impact on me had I been in Miami. And that seems really odd. But living in this quaint house... It was there was a lot of childhood reminiscing in this and living in an old house, right? I mean, this is so where I live now is so homey. It's also the only place I've lived and my mother never got a chance to see. And it actually looks, it reminds me a lot of my very first house that I bought when I was in my 20s, got married, our first, and we had a townhouse, but like our first house, this house is actually really similar, built the same year, even. So being here has made my mother's death more impactful, in some ways sadder. I think if I were living in Miami, I would have brushed off the grief a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And maybe some people think it's a good idea to brush off grief. I don't. I don't think I would have seen the meaning in what I lost as not just losing my mother, but lost my last family member. I'm it. Like there's an, I'm the last one standing of a family of five. I, I I say that knowing I have an older brother who's five years older than me, but I forget about him. I've seen him maybe six times in 40 years and he's nothing but trouble. So I actually prefer to pretend he's, I'll never, I'll never see him again in my life. I made that very clear when I was done settling my mother's estate in any way that it included him. I made it very clear to go on with your life, but I will never see you or speak to you again. So he's gone as far as I'm concerned. So I'm it. So losing my mother had a lot of impact in, in multiple ways that I don't think I would have faced if it was in Miami. I would have glossed over it, which Miami, living in Miami does so well, right? It's a, it's a great place if you just want to gloss over. If you just want it to look pretty, but you don't know what's under the surface, that's Miami. But living here put me in a position of really grieving. Her, the garden I put in was really inspired and, and anchors on a wind chime that hung on my mother's front door. Now, again, this is the house I grew up in since the age of three. So 56 years I've lived in this house and there was a wind chime on the front door, which chimed when you, every time you opened it, closed the door. And after her funeral, I went back to her house. I was leaving the house, not knowing when I'd be back. I knew at some point I'd have to clear it out. 
And that wind chime went off at the front door as I was closing it. And I just turned around and I grabbed it. I took the wind chime. It's the only thing I grabbed out of the house and threw in my suitcase. And that became the inspiration for the garden. So it's at the garden gate is the wind chime. I would never have been as sentimental about all of this if I lived in Miami. I, I definitely would have let the environment just kind of gloss it over where it's been much more impactful being here. That makes, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And maybe you needed to be there because you needed to feel this and yeah. you needed to feel the the grief and, and sit in it for a little yeah. bit. Do you want to hear the craziest story though? You're yeah, not yeah. even, you wouldn't know to ask this one. I've always had a fondness for hummingbirds, but it's not like you get to encounter them a lot. Like it's never been my experience, but on the rare occasion throughout my life, I saw a hummingbird. I just think they're magical, right? I just see everything. The fact that they flutter so quickly that they can pivot. And I mean, to me, there's like all these life metaphors in the way a hummingbird flies. They're fast. They can change directions instantly. They can hover. They come back up. I think they're so cool. So when I was in Connecticut for the month, this house I rented, which had beautiful gardens, there were quite a number of hummingbirds. And I was thrilled. I'm like, well, isn't this a pleasant surprise? One day, I'm working outside on the front porch, as I did every day, and I go to get up. And this hummingbird comes cruising from the garden across the porch in front of my face. This hummingbird is hovering. I'm backing into the house. And this hummingbird would probably have followed me to the house. Really strange behavior for a hummingbird. Like, yeah. I'm thinking I'm Irish, I've got a red nose, but not enough to attract a hummingbird, I'm thinking, right? <laughs> but this hummingbird is like hovering in front of my face and just left. I'm like, that was really odd, but boy, I kind of felt like that hummingbird had a message for me. I let it go. That was in August of 22. So I get back from that month, immediately decide I want to move back to Connecticut, so I think. And we move, my mother dies. This wind chime, I put in this really a tribute garden to my mother. I had all the plants. It took me about an hour and a half, two hours to put all the plants in the ground. Got them all in the ground. I sit on the step of my deck looking out at the garden. And within 90 minutes of planting this garden, a hummingbird shows up. <laughs> now, this is Florida. Hummingbirds are not overly common here. I had not seen one here before. Also, a male hummingbird, because they're very colorful, shows up. I'm like, okay, this is odd. Some period of time goes by after that. My coach, I had been working with a coach for a number of months, specifically working on the hero's journey. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but really deep, profound hero's journey work. And we came to the conclusion that this hummingbird was a messenger for me in whatever, whatever abstract way we want to put meaning on that. So he said to me, he says, if you're ever at a point where you need a mentor, look for a hummingbird, look for some sign of a hummingbird. So sure enough, one morning, I'm having the morning from hell. I'm in the shower. My whole world is collapsing on me emotionally. I'm in the shower. And I said, I need to see a hummingbird. I get out of the shower. My daughter comes to work, works with me every day. We walk into the office. The windows look out on my garden. And there's a hummingbird. Mm. I gasped. And then told her, what, I mean, I think you told her what happened. Like, I literally just asked for this sign and this hummingbird showed up. So I went and got a hummingbird tattooed on my arm. Aww. Is that your first tattoo? My first tattoo. And I ha asked the tattoo artist to come into his shop on Mother's Day. So oh. I had it because, I mean, I don't think this hummingbird is my mother. It's not my spiritual animal. It's not my mother reincarnated. I'm not, 
I'm not seeing it that way at all. But there were just so many things overlapping, right? The hummingbird, my mother's garden, just everything, everything overlapping. The month I was in Connecticut for that month, that was my mother's 85th birthday that month. I, I literally kidnapped her out of the nursing home because she wasn't allowed to leave. And I said, yeah, right. That's not so I literally kidnapped my mother out of the nursing home and brought her so we could celebrate her birthday. So there's just there was enough of a connection. It has something to do with my mother, this hummingbird. So yes, my very first tattoo. And I it needed to be on Mother's Day. So we met at the salon and this artist the artist got it. I explained to him why it was important to me that we do it. It was a Sunday. And yeah. he, he came in and did it for me. Wow. Nice. It kind of reminds me. So we first started talking to one another, coaching, whenever I was trying to come up with a topic, remember, of that mm-hmm. second book, like, what am I going to yeah. do? You were talking about, it's going to be about confidence. It's going to be, you know, something or whatever. So it it changed a hundred times and then it ended up coming back full circle and it ended up leaning more toward joy. But what's interesting is that you've not read the book, right? No, you- no. It's not out yet, is it? No, Marshall. But I don't talk about hummingbirds, obviously, but there's a message in there throughout the whole entire book, really about how these little things that happen in our lives have and can have so much meaning and so much of an impact, but we have to have the headspace and the environment to see it. For me, I noticed it in in little things like snow globes, smells suitcases, like pajamas, like just these little things that had deeper meaning. And the thing is, is it was nothing different than it's happened to me my entire life. No like crazy scenarios, like nothing. I just never saw it until I gave myself a little bit more of a calm, safe space to open up those. Yeah. And and believe me, I'm as 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 kumbaya and woo woo as this conversation might sound, I'm also very, and I know you are too. I'm very logical minded. Like I actually understand the science behind this. It's called brain priming, mm-hmm. and I use it in marketing every day of my life. Like to me, it's one of our strongest marketing strategies is understanding the power of brain priming. What brain priming is, which again, this is what I love about this is that people seem to be, especially nowadays, people seem to be so afraid to live in the gray area. They want black or white. But the fact of the matter is the gray area is in between the black and the white, and these things go back and forth. So while there is real science as to what brain priming is, it's actually also deeply rooted in Buddhism, which is something I studied for many, many years. And in Buddhism, the philosophy is that you can only recognize what you already know. Okay, so in spirituality, this gives you an incredible amount of power for you to decide what you want your life to look like. If you want your life to look like joy, then you have to understand what joy for you looks like. Otherwise, you'll never recognize it. I used to, you can only imagine being my kid. Like when my kids were little, like we'd be out working in the garden. I'd I'd teach them these profound lessons. Like you can't plant a weed and yell at it to become a flower. It doesn't work that way, right? You plant a weed, you get a weed. That I used to tell my kids all the time. It's I, I my kids grew up very privileged. And I was very aware of that, as are your kids, right? Let's be real. Your kids are growing up privileged. I didn't want lazy kids because it wasn't laziness that got me to where I was that gave them a non-privileged or to gave them a privileged life, right? You've worked really hard for your accomplishments. You don't want your kids to be lazy either. So I would teach them you have to meet the sun halfway. Like I, I was, these are like profound meanings I always taught them. It's like 
your light, the sun is shining on you. Like you wouldn't believe you're so privileged. You had a beautiful home, education, the whole bit. The sun is shining on you, but it won't keep shining on you unless you meet the sun halfway. Like get off your ass and make sure you work hard. And I have three kids that are highly successful in their fields and have really abided by that. Like they are not privileged, entitled kids. And I'm so proud of them. That's the thing I'm most proud of them for. So we go back, you know, there's this idea of brain priming, which is very logical. But in Buddhism, one would say it's you can only recognize what you already know. We also in real life, Casey, to your point, we experience this every day, right? The thing somebody tells you about a car you never heard of before, and now it's every other car on the road, you notice it. Yeah. Or a book or a move, right? That's what brain priming is. The brain priming is the reality that your brain will only recognize what it already knows. It doesn't see something that's foreign to them. So to your point, we can say it was just a coincidence. It's possible the hummingbird may have been there before and I didn't notice it because I laid down the intention that morning in the shower to see the hummingbird. I noticed it when it showed up. It's possible it could have shown up without my having made that request and I wouldn't have noticed. Or you also can believe there is a little magic in life. Like I did ask and it showed up. So Is why not the third book? No, you can't like, so I'm, th- Kate, I'm taking on tangents here. I'm three for three, three books. I'm working on the third one, kind of third and fourth at the same time. Three books I've written. Every one of them were a different book to begin with that I scrapped and then wrote a different one. And I'm doing it freaking again. I thought I had the book I was <laughs> going to write and now I'm putting it aside and I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be writing a whole other book starting all over again. Okay. Well, I bet it's going to be amazing. I mean, I just think that that message in and of itself could be the core message of a whole book. Yeah. Like I was saying, I mean, I love, and this is just the land I love to play in, is that the the land between the logic and the mystical, right? I mean, I just, I have no desire to figure that out. My life is not grounded in any particular religion or spirituality. Like I have zero idea what happens to our bodies when we die. And I really don't care. Like a lot of people need to know, they need to know whether they're going to heaven or whatever they might, then that's fine. I am okay with that. To me, it's just not willing to have, I'm totally okay not knowing. (laughs) I'll be surprised if there's a world after this, like, cool, (laughs) you know, I'll be, but at the same time, I'm okay if I'm just rotting in the earth because I believe in fertilizer. Like, I really don't care. So (laughs) I, I don't need to be meeting on that. Or I think a lot of people need to put things in the bar. I'm very comfortable in this place of the in-between. So I like to live in a space of thinking logically and understanding what I can do in business with this idea of brain priming. Like that's the whole idea of marketing. By putting yourself out in front of people, you're priming them to see you, right? Yeah. That's to me is the root of marketing. But at the same time, I love thinking about the mystical side of it and the fact that signs show up. Yeah. And I'm okay living, I'm, I'm okay lo- using the mystical to make money. Yeah, of course. I love this side of you. I mean, I like the other side too. <laughs> What's the other <laughs> side? <laughs> I, like the, I like the middle, you know, you got the yeah. woo-woo and then you got the extremely business focus. Yeah. And then, see, I think that that's kind of where I moved into as well, wouldn't you say? Yeah, like definitely. From, you definitely have. Yeah, there's been a, and I think for me, I needed that. It's almost like I feel like I'm on a teeter-totter sometimes, but I'm in control of the teeter-totter. Like, yeah, if I want to go this route, okay, I can turn that on. If I want to lean more into this more vulnerable, like, let's talk about whatever type of conversation, let's do that. 
here's the thing with you, Casey. And before we, I don't know at what point we started recording this, but I was congratulating you on your birthday and congratulating you on your accomplishments. And more than likely, you probably took my congratulations of your accomplishments on the business side and the building new home side and financial accomplishments. I meant that. And I also want you to recognize in yourself that your level of personal development by age of 40 is astonishing, right? It's take, I'm 20 years older than you. It's taking me that additional 20 years. I mean, during that time, 16 years ago, I came out. I've been in, I've had faced so many challenges and figuring out this same sex relationship thing, because from the day I came out, I literally said to my therapist, when I walked into my therapist's office, knowing very well that I had come out to myself, I walked in my therapist's office and said, yeah, I'm gay. And she wasn't at all surprised. And I said, (laughs) she wasn't at all surprised. I said, the problem is I hate men. She goes, I know you do. This is going to be a problem. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So it's been 16 years of figuring out how do you get past it is undeniable that I'm a gay man. And I kind of think men are assholes. Can we say that in your show? I don't know. But I do. Yeah. Yeah. You can say I just do. Like I've not had men, very few men have impressed me in my life as far as being in touch with their feelings. As far I mean, very few men have impressed me. So that's been so that has opened up. A lot of growth. So I just want to go back to acknowledging for you, like the fact that you live in this land now, Casey, of the in-between, that you are both logical and so in touch with yourself, that you've done that personal growth by 40 is astonishing. That's your biggest accomplishment, not just your business success, building this beautiful home, finding success in a loving relationship. All great. But your biggest accomplishment is who you have become as a person that I have seen in a few years by the age of 40. You're decades ahead in personal growth. There's your accomplishment. In my I'm going to repurpose the hell out of that. I'm going to make that like my promotional banner. It's I true. envy you because it's, I, I needed those extra 20 years. I mean, I jokingly always say I'm a very slow learner. Like I didn't figure out till <laughs> 44 that I was even gay. Like it took me a long time to figure that out. 19 years of marriage and three kids later. Like, oh, you're gay. But, you know, the fact that you've done all that already is is amazing. Well, I appreciate that. That makes me feel good. And I have another question for you that I'm curious about. But before I ask, I'm wondering if you want to say something sweet to me as well. Uh, I agree. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Listen, here's a really serious question. Who is more difficult to live with, a man or a woman? Oh, a man. Part of the large part of the reason why it took me so long to figure out I was gay is I thought I was a chick magnet. <laughs> I mean, I was always surrounded with girls in high school. Like I, I never had a problem getting a date. I never had a problem getting a, somebody to go to high school dances with. Like I was surrounded by girls. I've always gotten along better with girls. I've been married twice. I don't know if you even know about the second marriage, but I've been married twice. First marriage for 19 years, the second marriage just for a year and a half, and that's when the light bulb went off. Aren't you and the second still friends? Is that the one that you're still close with? Um, I'm closer to my first wife. My second wife, I just don't get to see her very often, although I don't know that there's anybody on this planet Earth that I respect more than her. That's what attracted me to her, and the way she handled the situation was commendable beyond commendable. Like She's just an outstanding human. 
Um, I just don't get the chance to see her where, you know, the mother of my kids, we have reasons to interact and, and I genuinely like my first wife. I think she's a really cool person. So why would I not want to be friends with her? So we're really good friends, but easier to live with. So to me, women are just easier to live with because I've always, and that's part of what's always created me the confusion. It's like, I, I hate all dating advice. Let's just put that on the table. Dating advice is horrible. Now I call people out on it because I'm single and I, I, I want to find a different path for myself in life. But and this most dating device, advice is so bad. One of them is marry your best friend. I did. And I married two women. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's bad advice. Marry your best friend. I get the intent of it, but I don't have sex with my best friends. <laughs> I don't have passion. I don't, I'm not driven by this idea of like, has something to fight for. And that's when I realized in my second marriage, that's when I realized that there was something else at play here because I literally had the best human on the planet that I was blessed to be in relationship with and married to. She ticked all the boxes. And as relationships do, we started hitting some tough points. We were navigating a lot. She had been let go of it during the, it was during the recession. So she had lost a very successful, high paying job. So we were navigating our ways through that. We were moving, you know, joining our lives as people in our 40s. But what stood out to me is that I wasn't, I didn't feel any sense of passion for fighting for this. I was just ready to roll over. I'm like, yeah, okay, I don't have to be happy in the marriage or the marriage doesn't have to last. I don't, either way, I don't care. And I wanted to care. Why didn't I care? And I realized that's actually what brought out. It's when I started asking about my sexuality because I it was just a lack of passion. And I really I didn't know passion because I'd always been in relationships with a misalignment of gender. I didn't know passion. I didn't know passionate sex. I didn't know what it felt like to like fight for something and 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 hunger somebody and crave them. Like I had never been in that relationship until I realized that's because all my emotions like that lied with men, craving them passionately fighting for them, wanting it to work, like being in relationships that were difficult, but wanting my, my first relationship for six years with, with an alcoholic. And I wanted it to work so bad. I kept going and going and going. I am grateful for that relationship because I learned about passion. I was, yeah. I was fighting for something that I shouldn't have been fighting for, for for a long time. But the passion in me, my, the love for, that I had for him was real and genuine. And I was fighting for that. So that to me, it's why it took me so long to figure it out. It's so easy for me to be with women, but I don't want to live with a woman because I don't necessarily <laughs> want, I don't necessarily want it to be easy. I want it to be passionate and beautiful and something worth fighting for and that you're building and you're willing, willing to build it one block at a time. I totally understand that. Yeah, I totally get that. And I think that takes a lot of courage to go that route when obviously it would just be easier to just check off the boxes and just go yeah. with the flow. Yeah. And that's why I, I always prefer, I prefer to, when it comes to relationships, I like to refer to it as same sex more than a gay relationship. Like I'm totally fine with the word gay, getting used to queer, but you have to understand I grew up in a time when oh. queer was, <laughs> I grew up at a time when queer was really negative. I, I get it now. I, I understand how it's very inclusive and I'm very supportive of, of the idea of it. But like I said, for me, I grew up in a time when, you know, to be called queer was a very negative connotation. I agree with you. I have a really hard time. Her blood like, pressure. Yeah. I, I did a training and they were talking about how inclusive the word queer is. And I'm like, I don't want anyone to call me queer. I know. <laughs> I had a really hard time with it. I understand why, but 
my mom is in a same-sex relationship, so I guess I grew up with that culture a lot more. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. But that's why I like referring to it as same-sex. Like, I think you're actually describing the dynamic. Like, Mm -hmm. to me, it's not just a gay relationship. It's a freaking same-sex relationship. You try it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like saying to any straight couple, like, you give it a try. Like, it is not, it has a different element. Some things are easier. But there's a different element to a same-sex relationship. And no, one person doesn't take on the male role. The other person takes on the female (laughs) role. Oh, my God. Like, seriously? Like, that's there's an episode of that on the Golden Girls. That's how outdated that question is. It's a same-sex relationship, and it has challenges for sure. Yeah. To your point, I'd rather rather face the challenges of that and and live for the promise of passion than take the easy way. Because honestly, it would have been so easy for me to stay in marriage to either one of my wonderful wives that were just fantastic women. That would have been easy, but I would have been unfulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. I tell Kelsey, the only thing that I missed about a man is them carrying my stuff. You know, like, I don't think I ever lifted a thing for well, <laughs> my I tell you what, So my daughter is lesbian with and with her partner and i call upon her partner to carry all my stuff right i mean you just regardless i mean you just know people's roles i'm like oh she can handle this she knows how to use a power tool like i don't (laughs) it's stereotypical but the fact of the matter is like when i need you know something heavy carried around the house i know who i'm calling you know who to call (laughs) exactly oh my gosh that's so funny well everything that you said was it's just so what's the word like I mean, this is our ideal podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're you're just perfect. I'm not. That's what makes it perfect. I am so flawed. <laughs> but that's just it. I mean, I I don't. People don't get to see. And again, this is you know, I go through this argument on social media. People say, "Oh, you're only seeing the highlights." Or I'm very clear that what people see in social media is looks a certain way, which may or may not be the truth. For me, anyway, it is not an intentional. It's not intentionally to deceive. I also recognize my role to the degree that I have a role of leadership. Mm-hmm. And I think when you take on the responsibility for that, I've got a world of people or you know, my world, I've got people that are leaning on me. You have to then be the pillar that people are, like, that you're strong enough that people can lean on. So I just sort of have my own rule that I don't share as vulnerably and openly until it's in hindsight. Like mm-hmm. in reflection, I can share something that was going on at a time that people didn't know and share the lessons learned from that for the benefit of others. Yeah. I think otherwise you just run the risk of it, of just pouring everything out. I, I did a post recently, a Facebook post. I don't know if you saw this, but I um, shared that I've really taken to like a certain designer. His name is Alexander Matusi. Did you see Emily in Paris? Yes, yes I and, I, and I did see your post. So, yeah. but I- so this he's featured in Emily in Paris. If you remember when they were working on that project with the hearts, one guy said it looked like a balloon, and then they did the hot air balloon thing. So that's Alexander Matusi, but he was, I think, pretty unknown, or maybe more known in France, but unknown here in the U.S. for the most part. And I just really took a liking to his designs. His business name is uh, Ami, A-M-I, which actually is initials, Alexander Matusi. But what he's known for is a heart. Right. So his logo is a heart with an A underneath it that almost looks like a body figure with a heart on top. But also within on the clothes, I have one shirt that's so the entire shirt are, is hearts, but it's so busy, you almost don't notice it. Like people look at it and they just see a pattern. But if you look at it, it's actually connecting hearts. Mm-hmm. So I explained that 
I've taken to liking this clothes in part because it is my mission at this point in my life to wear my heart on the outside. But that's different than wearing your heart on your sleeve because the the expression, I'm going to wear my heart on the sleeve, or when you say to somebody, that person wears their heart on the sleeve, it probably implies they're constantly pouring out their problems, their pain, right? right out there on their sleeve. I'm not interested in doing that to people. I'm not interested in pouring my problems out in front of people. But I am at a point that I am willing to wear clothes with hearts all over them, baseball caps, you name it. I plan on, I'll be in Paris in a month or so, and I plan on going to his original flagship store. To me, it's a statement more for myself than others that this is the way I'm living now. I'm living with my heart on the outside of my body with the intention to serve better, to be more authentic, to be a little bit more raw, and to let people see in. But I'm not wearing my heart on my sleeve. I'm not going to, you're not going to have to deal with all my problems, but I am going to show up with my heart fully present. Sounds like somebody else I know. You're going to have to close this one because that was good. Yeah. I don't, (laughs) I don't think there's anything to match that, but I do think that oftentimes, I mean, you guys are very high functioning, achieving people. And so sometimes it's hard to step into that vulnerability or like show your heart, even when you've been through a troubled time. But I think it makes you guys human in a lot of ways to talk about some of those things that you've learned for for other people to gain some knowledge on too. hundred percent. I mean, I, and again, you may or may not know this and actually Casey, you're on my mind. Maybe we talk about it later, but I'm launching what has been a, a, an ambition of mine for a long time. But from mo- up all up to this point, I wasn't feeling ready, wasn't feeling ready. And that's I'm, I'm launching a year-long mastermind that starts in March. It's called High Achievers Mastermind. Now, a couple things I make clear. First of all, I'm calling it a mastermind because that's what people know, but I don't actually like the term mastermind. I think of this, I refer to this as a collaborative space. This is a space where I am bringing together a very carefully curated group of people that want to lift one another up. I think most masterminds are a bunch of individuals worrying about themselves, acting like they care about everybody else. Where I'm bringing together a carefully curated group of people that it's going to feel more like the rising tide lifts all boats. What I'm really looking forward to, in addition to the business growth that I hope we see for each participant, is a space where we all can deal with the high achieving experience. Because I agree with you 100%, Kelsey, there is a different, it takes a different soul to become a high achiever. When you do, has its own set of challenges. And this is, I've been studying this for years. I was in a Facebook group of very high level speakers a couple of years ago. I saw more imposter syndrome, more vulnerability, more fear in this group of the highest paying speakers on the planet than I did anywhere else because it was a safe place for them to share this vulnerability. And you realize a lot of the things we think we're leaving behind as we become up, you climb the ladder of high achieving, actually get louder. And there is truth to we're lonely at the top. And it's not because we're alone. I feel this often. Like, I don't know who I would turn to, right? I mean, it just, it, it is lonely at the top because unless it's somebody I'm paying to listen to me, you start realizing there's not a whole lot of people in your life that you don't pay that you can really open up to because you're either, you know, spewing out on somebody else or, you're making somebody else, un, you know, even your partner, like hard to open up sometimes. You don't want to give that person concern. This high achievers mastermind, 
I am looking forward to it not just being about the business growth. That's why it's a year long, but hopefully come together to be a group of people that we now have one another during that year and for however long afterwards. I suspect probably forever that we'll have one another as a, an understanding of what we face as high achievers. Since we're already talking about this, can you tell people if that may be something that sounds like a good fit where they can yeah. find information? Yeah, absolutely. And it is very carefully curated. And, and there's actually a sign. That's why I'm calling it a collaborative space. It's something I witnessed by something I created and I saw it firsthand. I'm like, oh, something else happened here. And then I had the good fortune. I was on a, at an event in London and I met a scientist who has studied the science of collaboration. And one of the things that is different about a mastermind versus collaboration versus teamwork, collaboration is intentional. To benefit from the magic of collaboration, there's an intentional effort to bring together the right combination of people. So this has been very carefully curated. I'm limiting it to seven people for the first year because I don't want it to be more than I can really hold. So I'm limiting it to seven. The first five came along pretty easily. The last two, I've turned down four or five people because I just don't feel like they're the right combination. The next, the next two need to be just round off that, that formula. And the formula, based on our conversation, which I haven't really disclosed, but the formula to me is we're going to have a mixture of right and left brain thinking people. I'm, there's intentionally a couple of really woo-woo people and a couple of really logical don't deal with the woo-woo, and it's going to be fun to put them in the same room. Yeah. Uh -huh. Because that's when it happens, right? That's when the magic happens. So you can find out more jeffreyshaw.com, my main website, and then in the menu, there's an option for mastermind. So click on that and all the information is right there. Awesome. Thank you. Do you want to snap into your country bo voice that you were using before we hit record <laughs> and let everyone hear it? No, I will let you. Maris? No, I'm not doing country bumpkin on here. That's what she was doing. She was like doing some kind of voice before I you mean, got it. I mean, it's front porch. I don't know what comes to mind for you or back porch. It's a back porch, <laughs> not a front porch. Well, we hope all of our listeners have enjoyed you, and I'm sure they will, as much as we have. And again, just one more time, thank you for being on this show and for being in our lives. And we just think you're the greatest. And we and know everything. right back at you. I'm glad to, to, to have. We don't get to speak as often as we're used to. And because we're achieving stuff. We're but, little um, busy beavers over here. Well, we'll try to get together soon. Excellent. If you're enjoying our podcast and would like to hear more from us, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast so we can keep making great content. Talk to you later, besties.